All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this privilege of gathering together as family. Thank you for giving us days like this to rejoice, times of fellowship in your Son's good name, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Thank you for your grace, your mercy, your unerring love, your faithfulness. Father, we're so grateful for all of these things, most of all for saving us, of course, for making eternity of being with you a reality, something that we can embrace even on a morning like this. Father, we pray for those in the congregation that are ill and can't be with us or healing, that you bring them back to us. As soon as possible, your will be done, of course. We pray for those that are still lost in this world, Father, that they be humbled, that they repent and receive saving faith before it's too late. We are, of course, most grateful and thankful for our Lord's work, your Son on the cross, to cancel out that debt and to make a morning of rejoicing like this one a reality for all of us. We just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. The Lord is our confidence, part 50. If you missed any of the last three messages, you've got to catch up. It's not, you just have to see them, um, especially the third one. Scott's like, it's not right. I'm just kidding. Sheesh. Oh, man, I was just a, I was just a sideshow to the first two. Anyways, uh, you for real, uh, make a point of it. It's um, very important to your, I would say, even your contentment in life, um, knowing why you're here knowing that you have a real purpose, that God left you here. It's not just something we talk about uh, at church. You know, God left me here so I can spread the gospel. And it sounds good when it comes, it rolls off the tongue, but there's a reality there. There's a practicality to it all. And uh, when you realize that practicality in your own life, uh, a little thing called purpose and confidence, all the things we've been studying up until that kind of a series, they all sort of come together. And it gives you a, a, a wonderful sense of confidence and purpose uh, that really is unparalleled uh, anywhere else. And so that's why I say you really need to listen to all three of those uh, messages. But uh, before we uh, continue on in part 50, here's the gist. A lot of what was taught uh, in those three messages on effective evangelism, that was the running title. We noted that Jesus, he's our prototype, remember? He's the greatest evangelist to ever walk the earth. Well, he used the law to lead people to salvation by grace through faith. And yeah, I put that there on purpose, by grace through faith, because I don't want there to be any incongruity or uh, discontinuity in your souls regarding the law and grace. They are completely harmonious if you would. Um, 
And you have to think about them that way. And that's why Jesus used them, uh, both. Jesus used the law and he used grace to bring people to himself. Galatians 3.24, Ephesians 2.8 and 9. Most of you know the reference to Ephesians. But let's also consider the driving force behind the past, uh, this past miniseries. Up here on the board, Galatians 3.24 says, Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. In other words, the law has a real purpose. Pedagogos uh, is the actual Greek word. Uh, if you know anything about education, we call it pedagogy. And that's where we would get the English word pedagogy from. But tutor, uh, it means a boy leader, a servant whose office it was to take the children to school, to lead them. By implication, figuratively, a tutor, pedagogue, instructor, slash a schoolmaster. Um, that's what the law is to us. It has become our schoolmaster, our tutor, to lead us to Christ. So you have to ask yourself, aren't you glad you were properly tutored? At some point in your life, you repented. If you're saved, at some point in your life, you had to have repented to receive saving faith. And so somewhere along the line, you were convicted of your own depravity. So aren't you glad you were properly tutored, that your holy instructor used it to save you? At some point, God the Holy Spirit convicted you in the deepest recesses of who you are. Said, you are depraved. I am perfectly holy. Will this lead you to Christ? The humble person says, absolutely. So here's the viewpoint that the Spirit developed over the past three lessons, the proper perspective on the law up here on the board. God gave us the law as a grace gift. As a grace gift. The law is a great, it's perfect. It's the mind of God. He says, here's my standard. The law has a real purpose in evangelism. Here's what Paul had to say on the topic up here on the board. Romans 7, 7, part B. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. How do you repent if you don't know that you're a sinner? Why would you repent if you don't know you're a sinner? And Paul says it in plain English, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Well, that's a good thing to know that you're a sinner, is it not? Is that not the absolute precursor to salvation? You bet. To reaching out to a Savior, you bet. So anything that drives you to that knowledge is a grace gift, is good. And that becomes, you say, wait a minute, if that happened for me, then I have to use that as the same vehicle for others, the same lever, the same device when I evangelize others. So giving the giving of the law is a grace gift. And why wouldn't we give that to the next person? Someone gave it to you. Why wouldn't we give it to the next person? If it's a grace gift from 
the holy God of the universe, why would we not, why would we ever hesitate to give another person the benefit of the law? In fact, now that we know God the way we do, it makes perfect sense that he would give us the law. Doesn't it? I mean, knowing God, it makes perfect sense that he would give us the law, that he would disclose his own mind to us, to drive uh, us to him through his son, our Savior. It makes total sense that he would do that. I mean, what kind of father would promise judgment without a known law to abide by? Wouldn't that be extremely unfair coming from a God who describes himself as perfectly just? Yeah. Yeah. So the fact is that we should expect to have been given the law for the specific purpose of giving us a divine standard by which we can orient to, in our case, realize our disorientation to. None of us have ever measured up. The only one who ever did so was Jesus Christ. None of us have ever measured up. But it doesn't make it any less perfect or any less of a, let's call it a utility, that God uses in our lives to drive us to Christ. So we would expect to be given the divine standard so that we would be humbled by it. Therein lies the grace gift of the law. It teaches us about ourselves, something we can never expect from the world. We would expect that from God. The world lies to us about us. Says you're capable on your own. Says, you know, this and that and the other. Just lies upon lies. Doesn't want us to know about the divine standard. Lies about the divine standard. Infiltrates the church waters down the gospel, takes the law itself out of the equation, you, all, of the, all of the above. It lies to us about ourselves, and we have this perverted notion of ourselves. The problem is that a lot of people out there want to live in said lies about themselves because they are arrogant in their flesh. Again, on the flip side is the truth, though, which is the law and the gospel. And they exist for one basic reason. The law establishes the divine standard and the gospel provides the salvific response. The law establishes the divine standard and the gospel provides the salvific response. In other words, you can't make the standard. You don't cut it. The gospel will take you there. The good news about Jesus Christ is what solves that problem. So the law opens up the chasm, gives the problem statement, magnitude, and the gospel takes you from the far side to the near side of God. That's how it works. Making the law and the gospel known to those he judges is a grace gift. And for those of us who humbly accept this truth, it becomes the wellspring that leads to greater and greater appreciation for him. Not sure about you, but 
Every day I learn the Bible, every time I see another command, my appreciation grows. Because I know every time I read a command, I say, I've failed that way more than I've satisfied it. And every time there's a failure on the docket in my little personal portfolio of failures, I know that all the more he suffered on the cross to cover that sin. And for that, I'm more grateful. So each and every day, if you have things lined up properly in your soul, each and every day you become more and more appreciative for what he's done for you. That's how you can tell, I would argue, a true believer from a professing one that's not. They actually appreciate the work that he did on the cross. It's not just some free ticket to heaven. They appreciate it so much that they want to share the good news that they want to get down on their knees daily and thank him for all that he's done. So for those of us who humbly accept this truth that becomes the wellspring of appreciation, the more we live and learn, the more we appreciate Christ's work on the cross. The law creates a chasm, the gospel crosses it. Hence, a point from this past Wednesday's message up here on the board. The one who's forgiven much loves much. Luke 7, 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. It's a really good thing to understand how much you've been forgiven. How wide that chasm is between depravity and the holy God of the universe. And as that expands, so does your love for him. So here's a capstone principle of effective evangelism. That was the name of our series up here on the board. The love of God. God loves us beyond human comprehension. By giving us his law, he has provided us with the basis for understanding this love. Look at how far I have taken you. This is how holy I am. Look at yourself now. Aren't you grateful I sent my son? We find it magnified at the cross where our transgressions against his perfect law are met with sacrifice. As evangelists, then, it's imperative that we share this part of the good news with others. This grace gift of being given the law. We ought never compromise the true gospel because we think we're somehow being kind to our audience. I think that's the weakness in humanity coming out in us. We, we're so trained nowadays in this PC culture to be unoffensive that it's ungodly, unchristian-like even, to offend others. But yet therein stands in the very name of our religion, Christianity, Christ, who was called the rock of offense. So don't ever buy that lie, folks, that you allow the world to define who you are in Christ. You let the world define how you should function with the gospel. The gospel is supposed to be offensive. That's the whole point. The person of the gospel was the rock of offense. What do you think is going to happen when you present him to this world? If it's not offensive, you probably got some shady version of it. 
some watered-down, grotesque, perverted version of the gospel. Little g. It's no longer capital G. It's little g. It's some other gospel. It's some other Jesus. Some emaciated version of him from some other spirit. Evil spirit. We call that the doctrines of demons. We don't have the right to pervert the gospel. Hmm. We ought never compromise the true gospel because we think we're somehow being kind to our audience. It's neither kind nor gracious to leave out the key lever that God uses to drive others to humility. See, that's the beautiful thing about the gospel is you don't get to start here in advance. God says, no, 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 no. Here's where you think you are in your self-righteousness. I'm going to bring you to your knees. I've got to bring you really low. I've got to humble you by showing you who I am. And there's no excuses. Read Romans 1. I'll, I'll, you can see me in the, in the earth, in my creation. I'm going to bring you really low, and it's at that point I'll lift you up. That, those are the folks that God, uh, humble, God exalts, those who humble themselves. Hmm. It's neither gracious nor kind to leave the key lever out that God uses to drive others to humility. In fact, such thinking flies in the face of humble obedience to truth. On that note, one sort of byproduct of our study this past week was the following. Matthew 5, 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I want you to focus on the first part there. Blessed are the meek. Meek means the submissive. Remember the whole good work on obedience of faith? The word obedience, how powerful it was presented from this pulpit by means of the Spirit. That meekness, submissiveness, is what brings about blessing in our lives. Here's the thing, though. Meekness isn't weakness. We derive all our strength submitting to the word of truth. It's when we depart from that that we become weak. It's when we try to accommodate human sensibilities, particularly when we present the gospel, that we've weakened it. Meekness isn't weakness. Never mistake meekness for weakness. Go to 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. Don't ever make this mistake, my friends. Jesus was meek, completely submissive to the plan of his Father, and no one was stronger than him. And you know what? Because of that strength, because of his confidence, he never compromised. He said, this is the way it is. And that was it. And that's the way we ought to be. doesn't mean we have to be callous or harsh. It just means we have to be uncompromising. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, 
so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, or with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I put my faith in him. I rest in his power to work through me. The only way we do that practically is to abide in the word of truth. We don't compromise it. So if you put all this into perspective, when you really think about it, being an evangelist, and you're all evangelists here. You may not be ordained like Scott. It may not be an identified spiritual gift where it's something you're driven to in a special way or gifted in in a special way, but you're all called to evangelize. Being an evangelist is the time in our lives when being meek, a.k.a. submissive to the truth, matters the most. It matters the most. In other words, regardless of how offensive the gospel truth is to an unbeliever, we cannot compromise it by watering it down. That is the error that has proliferated throughout contemporary Christianity. That's the error in this PC culture that we live in. Offensiveness is unacceptable. Somehow it has become unchristlike. How can it possibly be unchristlike when he was the rock of offense, when he was the stumbling block? So much so they killed him. How could that possibly be consistent with Christianity? That's the whole point. But that's the error in contemporary Christianity nowadays. I think we get confused, honestly, by emotionalism. And I'm not saying it doesn't happen to the best of us. It happens to me all the time. I'm, I'm pathetic. So I'm chick, I chicken out. I walk away like, what is wrong with you, man? You had a perfect opportunity to tell someone. And you like chickened out like a pansy. And I walk away and I go, Jesus would have never done that. And that's how I know I'm not him. Like really, really, really far from him. I think we get confused by emotionalism that comes to us wearing, oh, I don't know, a John 3.16 t-shirt or a Jesus loves you hat or any other form of association with Christ. We just sort of buy this sales pitch. Well, I'm wearing a John 3.16 shirt, so leave me alone. I'm good. But I've seen many recorded videos, if you would, of people trying to give people the gospel, and the person delivering the gospel is holding fast to say the law, to the truth about human depravity, and the person receiving it is weeping and saying, no, no, that's not my God, you're wrong. I'm a Christian, you're a jerk. And people around the person crying, it's okay, baby, it's okay, you're, he's a jerk. No, 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 no. Don't be fooled. We see tears and we don't recognize that they spring from a root of arrogance. Ladies, I would say you're masters of it, no offense, in your flesh. In your flesh, probably started with daddy. If I just weep a little bit, daddy's like a little, <laughs> what's the matter? Please, oh, no, you knew about that? 
Tears mean jack. Tears are something that spring from arrogance very often for the sake of controlling. I'm a cornered rat. I've got nothing else to do. I'll turn on the, you know, the waterworks. I'll spin up emotionalism to garner a little support, to manipulate the situation. Do not be fooled. When we see tears and we don't, or we see tears and we don't recognize that they spring from a root of arrogance, when the flesh is offended, it often cries out for relief. Seize the moment. Never compromise. If they're weeping, that means they've been sort of cracked. They're at that point. You might be able to get through. Maybe not. But do not be fooled by emotionalism. Do not compromise. Don't water down the gospel in that moment. It's, oh, 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 I'm sorry. Don't be sorry. You're sorry for what? Giving them the truth? It's not you that's offending them. It's their flesh that's railing out. Don't be fooled by even tears and emotionalism and, you know, this carrying on. Doesn't mean you have to be mean. Be like, what a baby. Doesn't mean you have to do that. <laughs> it means you don't compromise. That's the trick, guys, gals. That's the trick. Satan, Satan has no scruples. None. Tears, fighting, yelling, stomping, crowd gathering, you name it. Whatever it takes to win. But you stand firm and you say, no, 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 I'm sorry. I'm sorry this offends you, but this is the truth. You're depraved. You were born depraved. You need to recognize that and you need a Savior because of it. Now, if that offends you, what would you like me to say? You have a conversation to have then with the one who created you. But that's not my conversation. DJ was telling me about that. He says he's so psyched. He's just like, yeah, I'm just going to stop putting everything on the word of God. Yeah, that's right. Don't, don't, don't take it on. Don't become the judger. You know what I'm saying? Don't just go up to somebody. Do you know you're a sinner? Well, well that's your opinion. Or you could say, hey, the Bible says this. What do you say? Have you ever transgressed against this? Where's the weight? The weight went from you being a judger to God being the judge. That's exactly where you want it. Now, if they cry out because of that, that's between them and the, their creator. You've done your job. Move on. Seize the moment, but never compromise. Remember, Christ was meek, but he was never weak. It is our supreme duty to be the same, which is what he meant when he said, follow me. Follow my lead, in other words. Effective evangelism. Presenting the gospel isn't an aw shucks moment. Rather, it's a moment where absolute truth matters most. It is supremely ungracious, ungracious to water down the truth in the word of God in order to keep your speech palatable and then call it meekness. Oh, shucks. Oh, I'm, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you're crying, sweetheart. Let me water down the gospel. Let me relieve a little pressure, even though it's not my business. Let me take a little pressure off of you, right? It's like a weak teacher who's, you know, the student comes up at the end of the semester. <laughs> if I don't pass this course, I have to go. Oh, I'll bump it up to a D minus. No, for real. What was that all about? 
They failed. They didn't do the work. They didn't pass the grade. They failed. And what? You compromise? You compromise the value of actually what it means to pass the course? You're going to do that with the gospel too? Why aren't you just a sweet old chap? Compromising God's word. God's statement on the facts. We don't have that right. But that's where effective evangelism sprouts from, the truth. To err in the gospel presentation is to err in the greatest post-salvation responsibility you've ever been given regarding others. Just remember this. Christ didn't die for nothing. He didn't die for nothing. We mustn't ever belittle his sacrificial death to accommodate the arrogant sensibilities of man, even if we are met with tears. Effective grace. It's much more gracious to tell the whole truth about Jesus than only the unoffensive parts. Jesus intended for all to know him as Savior from certain spiritual death, that condition in which all are born into. He wanted, to, he wanted everyone to know. He wants everyone to know. Jesus, our prototype evangelist, never compromised himself when he presented himself as Messiah. He never shied away from telling others why he was sent to earth by his Father to seek and to save the lost. He never shied away from speaking about hell and condemnation either. Why would Jesus, the greatest evangelist of all time, choose to use something like the law in his evangelism? And this is where we ended, I believe, on Wednesday. Why would he use the law in his evangelism? The greatest evangelist of all time. One word. It's effective. It's effective. That's why. Think about this. <clears throat> Think about the big picture now. What we've been developing over the last 50 parts of this series. We derive our confidence in evangelistic activities from the one who showed us how to evangelize in the first place. Some of you are like, I've heard you say it. I don't know where to start. I don't know how to evangelize. I don't know how to open the conversation up. Well, what do you think this little mini-series was? It literally was like, okay, okay, I hear you. Here's how you do it. Go ahead, use the law. This is how you do it. It's not difficult. You don't have to bear any of the burden. All the weight falls on the word of truth. If they want to argue about the Bible, that's between them and the Lord. They want to argue about the veracity of the holy God of the universe, that's between them and the Lord. But it's not between you and them. You have to almost make it impersonal. You have to be intimate enough to get a seat. But when it comes to the presentation and the, the, the weightiness of the truth, you have to hand it over to God. You have to let the weight of that tension, the, sometimes it's you know, palpable, that tension between you and the one you're trying to evangelize, let that weight fall on the word of truth. That's why it's good to have a little pocket Bible with you uh, wherever you go or, or on your phone, right? Have a, the Bible on your phone. And you just go, well, look at what it says here. It says like right here that, you know, blah, blah, blah. What do you think? We derive our confidence 
as evangelists from the one that showed us how to evangelize in the first place. So just some final encouragement on this topic of effective evangelism. We do have to get back to our primary course of study. As I wrote in a, a couple of blogs a month or so ago, the truth never leaves a person unaffected. It always bears fruit of some kind. Whenever someone is given the truth, it, it always leaves its mark. They can choose to reject it, but it's going to stay with them. Or they can choose to accept it, and it will also stay with them. But it never leaves a person unchanged. It always bears some kind of fruit. That's what the truth does. Well, you know what? The law is truth. Give them the law. This is what it says in the Bible. Give them the law. Leave them unchanged. That's the whole point. When a person is presented with the law, say even one of the Ten Commandments, it is inevitable that they are changed. What they must agree with, if they're humble, is that they simply cannot measure up to the divine standards of God's holiness. That's the whole point. Paul wrote about this, which is why you'll often hear godly, godly evangelists, not just folks that call themselves evangelists, Godly evangelists quote this very passage. Go to Romans 3, verse 10. Romans 3, verse 10. <clears throat> Romans 3, verse 10. <clears throat> I wonder, I wonder, honestly, I wonder how often this is quoted um, in the average, you know, contemporary presentation of the gospel. I wonder. But here it is, Romans 3.10. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's a description of natural man. Now we know that whatever the law says... It speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. That was something that came up in the series. That every mouth may be stopped. In other words, shut up with your self-righteousness. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's the grace gift that we started off this morning with. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. Nobody's ever measured up except Jesus Christ. That we have to know. That we have to present to people. Right? Usually it's one question, literally. Have you ever lied? Okay. You think that's offensive to the holy God of the universe? Probably. <laughs> to the, so to answer the question... Why would Jesus use the law in his evangelism? Again, it's effective. Shouldn't that be the very goal of evangelism? Just think about that. 
You go out to evangelize. Um, what good is evangelizing someone uneffectively? Like, if that's your goal. Well, I'm just going to evangelize, but not effectively. Um, why tutor someone with incomplete facts? It doesn't make any sense, and the student is likely to become confused, frustrated, and ultimately skeptical. You can do more damage. I was talking to Don earlier uh, in my office. So many of you are un being, the, the, the garbage in your soul is being unraveled, is being pulled out. You're, it's being cleansed from your soul because you were confused, you were frustrated, and ultimately even skeptical. Case in point, most, most professing Christians, I shouldn't say most, many, many professing Christians I know are skeptical about their own salvation. Are you going to heaven? Are you a Christian? Yep. You going to heaven? I think so. Not sure. Why are you like that? Because I, I, I think I'm good enough. Oh, man, wait a minute. What? This is where we're at, especially in this area, right? This is where we're at. That is a crying shame. But that's what happens when you have a false tutor, when the instructor supplants the holy instructor, when the instructor supplants that good dissemination of knowledge, this is what you end up with. You end up with some hack version of the gospel, some palatable version, some version that lies to people. And then if you ask them in their own religion, why does this and this exist in your religion? I don't know. I've been asking that for like 10 years. Every time it comes up, I just have another drink. Because I can't handle the, tr you know, I, I don't know how to reconcile, so I just turn the channel in my life. Too lazy to seek the truth. Too disingenuous to challenge what I think I know or the liars who have been lying to me all these years. It might even be your own parents. All of that's a shame. Sounds like a waste of time to uneffectively evangelize someone. So we must remember that the law has given us the much-needed lever in effective evangelism. It gives us that lever to make us effective. The law represents the perfect mind of God, setting the divine standard for us to measure ourselves against. The end result is always meant to drive us away from self-righteousness and to seek a savior. And this was about the time where the Spirit brought up a practical example from uh, uh, Scott, Evangelist Scott's experiences with evangelism. He just ca happened to call it just another walk in the park. And just so you know, both of these, both of the series, the two-part series he taught in the Just Another Walk in the Park are now posted on his website up there. So most of you should know this by now. ChristSavesMinistries.org But here's a few excerpts, uh, a couple actually, of just another walk in the park. The Christian, the evangelist says, you and I are guilty before God, so we must stop trusting in our own goodness to get to heaven. 
as religion often teaches us to do. And instead, place our trust in Christ alone as your Lord and Savior. Jesus is the only true good one, and he's the only one that made a satisfactory payment for your sins, according to the Bible. I love that. According to the Bible. See, that's that lifting and placing. Take it off of me. This is just my opinion about Christ, because everybody has an opinion about Christ. Very, very few of them are actually accurate. You say, according to the Bible, this is what it says. If they challenge you, you say, perfect. Perfect. Even if you're wrong, which you're not, but even if you're wrong on something, at least you got them going to the Bible. Right? And even if their motivation is to prove you wrong, how many times have we heard that situation where people say, I'm going I'm to read the Bible, prove it wrong, and they become saved because that's the effect of the truth. To crystallize the truth in one's conscience up here on the board, this was just another quote from that series. And the Christian evangelist says again, salvation is between you and God, and God looks at the heart. Time is short as is life. Go to him and surrender in repentance and faith. He is a good, good God who is rich in mercy, and he loves to give grace to the humble. That's not hard to say, and it's all biblical. That's the beauty of it. In closing out this series, I will ask the same three questions the Spirit's been asking all of us on this topic of effective evangelism. Number one, are you willing to express the love of God through the gospel? Two, will you suffer for doing good, for presenting a known stumbling block to an unbeliever, say the law? Say Jesus Christ himself, who is the fulfillment, the very fullness of grace and truth, which again is the law. Will you evangelize for God rather than for self, bearing a load of your own cross? I hope you understand what I mean by that last point. Will you evangelize for God rather than for self? I hope you know what I mean. For God, for his purposes. Not just so you can feel good about yourself. Not just so you can, I don't know, stake some claim to evangelism. Somehow you make it about you. Are you willing to sacrifice uh, your own good reputation, maybe, for the sake of evangelizing someone truthfully? So we've got a lot to think about. With that said, we need to get back to our primary course of study. We need to get some closure on our other series now. We are on part 50. Do not lose all of that. Perfect synchronicity, perfect little sidebar. All of that's all in play. The series we're on is The Lord is Our Confidence. We just saw how confident the Lord was in, say, presenting the law. Actually, if you want to say it truthfully, he presented himself, right? And he was the perfect fulfillment of the law. So he had full confidence and full disclosure. He was fully confident who he was, and he fully disclosed himself. You see? That's, what, that's our job. Disclose the truth. If you recall, before our mini-series on effective evangelism, the Spirit reminded us about the importance of abiding in the sphere of God. That was that thing that we left off on. Abiding in the sphere of God, and in doing so, we gain the advantage of confidence as fruit. 
He also gave us the how-to. How do we abide in God? How-to. And that essentially was one word, and I've already brought it up this morning. Obedience. How do you uh, abide in God's love? How do you abide in the sphere of God? Those, those are equivalent statements, by the way. You don't abide in love without abiding in the sphere of God. You don't abide in the sphere of God without abiding in His love. They're equivalent statements because all of it is inside of that sphere, so to speak. So the Spirit took us back to this old friend, something we developed months ago, and then it came back a few weeks ago. I suppose in the future it's going to come back again. As a friendly reminder, Jesus said in John 15, 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. In other words, if you obey. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love, John 14, 15, that speaks to meekness again, right? Meekness, submission. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. The greatest command given to unbelievers is to believe in Christ. Hence this week's blog, titled The Gospel is a Command. That's the greatest command given to unbelievers. Believe the gospel. The greatest command once saved is to love. So we have a different command on us, don't we? An unbeliever has to believe the gospel. We're commanded to love. Go to Mark 12, 28. Mark 12, 28. We are commanded to love. And if you truly love someone, if you truly love others, you'll give them the truth. It's the greatest thing you can ever give someone. Mark 12, verse 28. The greatest command once saved is to love. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Love. That's the great commandment for we believers. Love. The following came out a couple of weeks back regarding the practical side of this. And do not forget that the command to love carries with it the command to obey because this is how they are, right? They're intrinsic one to another. So if he says... I command you to love, well, buried in that, impregnated into that, based on other Holy Scripture, is the simultaneous command to obey. To obey. Up here on the board. Obeying the command to love. John 13, 35. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. 1 John 4, 11 and 12, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. You see, it's perfectly harmonious with what we just read. And Mark. Love and obedience are intrinsically bound, one to the other, as Jesus described and confidence is the fruit we enjoy when we abide in both. That's the beauty of it. And he said, come be with me. 
Come rest in the truth. I'll give you my peace. I'll give you my confidence. When you're with me, nothing can touch you. What can mere man do to you if God is for you? If God is with you because you're with him, you're untouchable. Does that make sense? You're literally untouchable. People can hurt you, bruise you, say things to you, throw things at you, try to disrupt your life, try to disrupt your happiness. You are untouchable. Some of you are miserable right now because you've defected. That is why the misery exists in your life. You got to go back to him. He's calling you back. He's saying, come abide with me in truth. Stop buying the lies out there. Stop buying the lies from the world. It's why you're, you're, you're a mess, some of you. It's why you're a mess. So these are the things we've been learning about in the Bible. Here's some more encouragement. Go to Philippians 4.8. Philippians 4.8. Philippians 4, verse 8. Still on the topic of obedience. It's funny how those things are connected, isn't it? Like confidence and obedience are connected. You know? Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. In other words, dwell on these things. Some of you probably have that in your Bible. Dwell on these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice. And that's that Greek word, proso. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Obedience of faith means practicing what Paul was writing about in Philippians 4.8. In other words, dwell on these things. Dwell on good things up here on the board. Practice these things. Practices from proso means to commit, to habit, to perform, to be in any condition, a la James 1.22-25. Don't just talk the talk, but rather walk the walk, a la Galatians 5. Paul was essentially saying the same thing Jesus said to his disciples, which was, abide in my love. That's the same idea. Do you see it? And if you do, you enjoy the myriad benefits. Go to Galatians 5.22. Galatians 5, verse 22. We're going to read nine little things that you don't have when you defect from God. And you, some of you are like, yep, that's absolutely true. Because <laughs> that's where I'm at. Christmas with the cranks. Hey, we got to get some double-sided tape on you. Don, can you do that for me, bud? Thank you. This thing's like ready to go off the side. Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Some of you are like, self-control? I got none. Why don't you have self-control? Like, for real. Because you've defected. That's why. Anyways. I'm just making fun because it's not, not ha-ha funny, but funny, you know what I mean? Like, goofy funny. We're awful. And then we sit there and scratch our heads. Jeez, I don't know why I'm not happy. 
Not, I don't know why I've lost all my contentment. I don't know why I'm miserable. How can you, let's just, can we just be honest right now? How in the hell can we ever be miserable? How the hell does that happen? No, for real. Is that not, like, when we really step back and go, that's actually really something to think about. Now, you don't have to say the word hell on Sunday morning, you hellions. Right? You don't have to say that word hell or hell. Right? I don't even know where the heck I went with that. Where was I going? How what? Yeah, thank you. How can you be miserable? Look! How can you be miserable with the cross? How, how can you possibly be miserable when the gospel is the centerpiece of your life? Have we forgotten? Does it take, is it that short of a runway? For real? We remember like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, I'm saved. Woo, woo. We literally abandon the thing that makes us who we are. We abandon the wellspring of peace. It's incredible. We get, we're like little puppy dogs that get sucked away by the world. All it has to do is bat its eyelashes once. And it's just like, because uh, we have no self-control. Stepping back. Regarding our series, The Lord is Our Confidence. When we step back, we are able to see the lies being peddled in this world as truth. But you've got to step back. You've got to step away from the fire. You've got to step away from your drama. You've got to step away from your misery. You've got to step away. I mean it. You have to step away from your emotional estate, whatever that thing is that you get wrapped up in so quickly. You've got to step away from it and say, how am I here again? I haven't always been here. Not that long ago, I wasn't there. When I heard that one message and it clicked and I was there and I was, woo, you know. It's like, woo, and then how did I end up here again? Step back, look at the whole scene and say, oh, I bought a lie. I bought a lie. And when I bought the lie, there I started tanking. And then I tanked and tanked and tanked. And I became, just like drinking booze, folks, you become increasingly intoxicated. Keep on sipping from that little well, and you become more and more intoxicated and worse and worse off, and then you hit what a drunk would call rock bottom. And there you sit, scratching your head. How did this happen? Well, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, you kept going back to the keg. You kept going to the fridge for that little bottle, girls. I don't give a crap if it's got a little snowman around the bottle. Or, you know, and then the thing goes, ting, 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 it's so cute. <laughs> right? Oh, mom, such a mess. Yes, you are, sweetie. <laughs> try to dress up a pig, right? We try to dress everything up. So you have to step back. Step back. What happened? Ask the question, honestly. How did I get here again? How did I get seduced? How did I take that first drink? How did I become increasingly intoxicated? Right? How did this happen? One such lie we just surmounted was the lie that the law doesn't apply to us anymore and that the gospel is somehow independent from it. If we step back knowing that the law was given as a grace gift, 
we quickly realize that the lies in this world are always attacks, not kind of, not sometimes, always an attack on God's grace. Always. It's gotten so confusing out there, even in the ranks of so-called Christianity, that the concept of grace itself has been completely perverted. Why does the kingdom of darkness use this tactic or own this tactic, we might say? Because grace is offensive to the arrogant. Why? Up here on the board. Just trying to knit some of this together as we get back into it. Why is grace offensive to some? Because grace destroys any notion of creature credit, any glory meant for self. It relegates the aspirations of the human flesh to a dung pile. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Isaiah 64, verse 6. That's why. Because there, with, with the grace of God, there is no place for the human flesh. And the human flesh is a gnarly little bugger. It does not want to give up its position. Right? This is like a, um, these are like campaigns we run. We have a couple, of, we have Christ strategy, we have satanic strategy, and then there's little micro campaigns, to use military terms, there's campaigns that we use against each other. And grace is the front that the kingdom of darkness will always assault all the time in your soul. Why? Because it, true grace, the grace of God, destroys any notion of creature credit, any glory meant for self, it relegates the aspirations of the human flesh to a dung pile. And when you have a scrappy little opponent, it's not going to give up. It's not going to be that easy. It's going to literally hand you a drink. Here you go. Let's have fun for a time. Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about the effects of being intoxicated with the world. And I'm using that as an analogy, right? Some of you are like, So you're like, it's not a bad idea. <laughs> it's sick. The fact that you guys laugh about that, you got problems. <laughs> Why do you think the world hates us so much? Hated Jesus first. It's because of this very thing, namely grace. I hope you see it. Hates it. Grace enables you. Grace makes you powerful. When you're weak, you're strong. My grace is sufficient for you, right? Same verse, we just saw it not too long ago. The, the world hates that because it makes you powerful. And you didn't earn it, you didn't deserve it. Hope you see it. They hate you because you live by grace. For grace to be true, though, a person must denounce all former claims to self-righteousness, self-worth, and even self-esteem. Contrary to popular belief, grace is a destructive force, but only for the flesh. Grace is a destructive force, but only for the flesh. Think about the fact that the law was given by grace. That destroys any notion of self-righteousness. What's worse for, for self-esteem, excuse me, what's worse for, let's say this way, what's worse for self the a self-righteous person than to be stripped of their self-esteem what's worse for a self-righteous person than to be stripped of their self-esteem well ask a worldly psychologist and they'll likely say nothing 
Isn't that what everybody's trying to protect nowadays is their precious little self-esteem? It's basically premised, the whole premise is on a lie. Yet, that is the very heart of repentance, to be stripped of your self-esteem instead of Christ's esteem. I'm using it that way. That is the very premise of repentance, is it not? Yeah. To have your little precious little self-esteem stripped. To have it crushed. To have it annihilated as an act of grace. See, today's Christianity is grace equals political correctness. It's not, it's, not, it's not gracious to crush someone's self-esteem. Oh, yes, it is. Damn straight it is. It absolutely is necessary. Can't be building up that thing. Can't dress up the pig. Do I still have her? Come on, sweetie. Uh, oh, look at her. Yeah. Remember her? Someone broke her leg. Is that right, Peter? You don't build on it. That has to be crushed. And by the grace of God, it gets crushed. We're not, we're not called to build on someone's flesh to, to say we're going to preserve that little precious self-esteem of yours because God knows you'll turn on the water, the waterworks again, try to manipulate the situation with your disgusting, arrogant flesh. We're not going to do that. We're not going to play that game because I know the truth. The truth is that you need to be stripped of that self-esteem, that self-righteousness so that you can actually have a chance at repentance. Hmm. I'm going to leave you that to think about. I want to end at a high note, though, so none of you lose sight of the big picture blessings in view, and that's what's really at stake. Go to Ephesians 1.18. Ephesians 1.18. We'll end on a high note. By the way, it's very difficult. When you're up here teaching, it's very difficult not to get crazy. No, I mean it. Because when you talk about the human flesh and you're filled with the Spirit, something goofy happens, something, uh, not, uh, something uh, primitive happens. You feel like throwing stuff around. Because you hate, it's not the people, you hate the fact that, pre, that sin is present in this world. Does that make sense? I hate it. I feel like flipping out. It's like, a, you know, anybody have a cheese grater? You know, that's what it feels like. It's awful. So anyways, maybe some of you experience the same thing. I don't know. Some of you are still going like this. <laughs> Been like that for 10 minutes, people. Stop it. Move on. Ephesians 1.18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might up here on the board, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know. It is difficult to get our arms around this. By the grace of God, he blesses us with spiritual sight, which changes us profoundly. We get to, quote, see him while alive on earth, and we love him in response. We love him because he first loved us, in other words. That's what it means to have your eyes open. 1 John 4.19 I, like Paul, just want your eyes and ears to be opened that you may see and experience God's love for you and particularly how he expresses it through grace. That's all I want. 
If that grace is hard on you at times, good. It's meant to be. It's meant to clear the way. But that's all I want, and I want you to wait or want it for yourselves as well. When we abide in his love, we have confidence in life. And we really need this kind of confidence because the more we learn from the word of truth, the more we feel alienated from this world. Without godly confidence, we are overcome with doubt. Something Paul wrote intimately to Timothy about. Let's go quickly there. 2 Timothy 1.5. 2 Timothy 1.5. Andrea, how are you holding up? All right, poor Andrea. She's got a little baby kicking on her bladder. Second Timothy 1 Timothy 1.5. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. In other words, be confident, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So you see, as the Spirit highlighted uh, last Wednesday, it's the gospel that becomes the centerpiece of all that we are. For our eternal love is based on the simple fact that God loved us enough to save us from certain warranted death and that he saved us by grace through faith and that he sent his son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for our sin, sin we are certainly responsible for. My friends, this is how we are to live our lives. This is the whole point of it. Even the discomfort that we get This is how we're supposed to live our lives, basking in the reality that is the gospel truth, that is the good news about Jesus Christ. As recipients of the greatest expression of love this universe has ever seen, we ought to embrace it always, shedding the doubt and the fear that is encouraged in us by the world through its perpetual lies. So let us rejoice together especially as we approach the sacred celebration of our Lord's birth, the birth of the one who was born to die for us. May we abide in his love and enjoy the confidence of doing so. Amen. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this precious gift of truth this morning. Thank you for encouraging us along the way, and thank you for always loving us, and thank you for being patient with us as we trudge along. 
Father, we just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned here this morning back to our homes and then out to a world, Father, that's in desperate need of truth. We just ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray.